So now, as we enter into our scripture reading, um, we are going to stand if you are able. We do this out of respect for God's word, um, as we stand under the authority of God's word. And we're going to be reading from John 21, uh, verses 15 through 19. On the table Bibles, it is page 907. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to, um, what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given to us out of his love. You may be seated. Awesome. Thanks, Tristan. And, and thanks for inviting people to this front table. I always get lonely up here by myself, but we've got some people up here. I won't be quite as lonely as normal. Um, as we get started this morning, we talk a lot about culture. People use the phrase uh, culture and changing cultures and all these kinds of things. And a lot of times we use those words differently. So I think it's important to know when we talk about culture what we're talking about. And so one helpful definition of culture is it is a, in a, an unwritten set of rules that guides behavior for the people that are a part of that particular culture. It's, it's the beliefs and assumptions that we have just below the surface that that impact how we relate to one another that are not oftentimes explicitly stated. And so when we go through 1 Peter, we're going to be talking a lot about culture. Uh, My first introduction to this was when I was in ninth grade. I went from being homeschooled from K through eighth grade to went to public high school uh, in ninth grade, which is the definition of culture shock. Like if you look at the dictionary, it's probably a picture of me as a ninth grader with just shock and angst on my face. But one of the things I realized the first couple of weeks is uh, the culture of homeschool where like I did my homework and I tried to be a good student was very different than the culture of the public school I was a part of. So we're sitting around before class and everyone's saying, but I didn't do my homework last night. Did you do your homework? And everyone's like, no, we didn't do our homework. And how about you, Colbert? Did you do your homework? And I was like, of course not. Homework is for losers. Who would have done that? And then class started and I kind of sheepishly walked up to the front of class and turned my homework in and was roundly made fun of by my peers for that. And so what, what I was doing is I was getting exposed to this new culture and my behavior was being shaped by my peers and the people around that. Luckily, I had my parents who were there for me, and they they, uh, guided me under their authority that the reason I go to school is not to fit in with my peers, but that my mind could be used to glorify God. It's actually a good thing to do my homework and turn it in on time, those kinds of things. And what happened with that is is there was an authority over me that said, even though you are in a particular culture with a particular set of values, that actually is not what's best for you. And you, you need to be among that culture. You need to be a part of the school. You still need to be a student, but you need to live with a different set of values that may at times make you stand out from your peers in the surrounding culture. The, the reason this is an important analogy is because that is a very clear picture of what we are going through in the American church right now. And so over the last 60 years, but really over the last 20 years in particular, the American culture is shifting dramatically. And, and so, so this, this unwritten rules, the assumptions that people bring to the table, the kinds of things that guide our 
our behavior is now radically different than it was 50 or 60 years ago. And because of that, we need an authority to sit under that tells us how do we relate to the culture around us. If the set of values and guiding principles of our American culture is not what God would have for us, where do we turn in order to know how to behave ourselves, what it looks like to be faithful in this context? And so luckily, uh, God has given us his word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. And so we're going to spend the next 13 weeks studying the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is, I think, one of the most easily applicable books of the Bible to our current day and age because Peter is writing, even though it's 2,000 years ago, he's writing to a context very similar to ours. It's a, it's a non-Christian culture with a set of values and assumptions and unwritten rules that are very contradictory to what the people of God are called to live under. And so, so Peter is very applicable. It's really easy to see how it relates to our lives. He's going to talk about things like marriage and our relationship to government, how you should approach the workplace, um, how you engage your own suffering, those kinds of things. And he's going to do it through this lens of saying, even though you live in a particular context, that place is actually not your home. You are living as an exile away from your true home. And even though you're in exile, if you submit yourself to Jesus and live according to how he would have us live, we can actually find ourselves thriving in the midst of this exile that we are in this morning. So we're going to begin a, a verse-by-verse study through the book of First Peter. We, we began uh, two weeks ago with uh, go, talking about the theme of suffering, and we're going to pick it up in First Peter 1, uh, verse 1. But before we do that, I want to say a word of prayer as we get started this morning. So would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the privilege and the ability to be able to gather this morning and to talk about your word and how uh, the, the words that are true and loving that are written here can guide our behavior as we navigate this current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So I pray as we take these next few minutes to open up what uh, your apostle Peter has told us through the inspiration of the Spirit, I pray that these words would change us, that we would leave more in love with you than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to, like I said, First Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, on the table Bibles, it's page 1014. And we are just going to do these first two verses as we get started. And so what we're going to see in these first two verses is it, uh, Peter introduces himself. We have an author, we have an audience, and then we have an important message that's going to lay the foundation for the rest of the book of First Peter. So we're going to work through those things, author, audience, and then the important concept we need to understand. So read with me First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so Peter, at the very beginning, begins by introducing himself. This is Peter, uh, right? And if we did a survey, whose favorite disciple is Peter? How many people's favorite disciple is Peter? Every survey you would ever take of the American church, everyone loves Peter, right? He's so, he's so bold and brash. Like he's, he, we all identify with him in a lot of ways. Uh, unlike someone like Thaddeus, like raise your hand if Thaddeus is your favorite disciple. Has anyone ever heard of Thaddeus? He's actually like Thaddeus is introduced in Mark chapter 3, and then we never hear from him again for the next three years. So all of you introverts, that's probably your favorite disciple, right? Like he showed up and he didn't say anything for three years. That's my kind of guy. That's what I'm about. 
But the reason we connect with Peter is because he is so upfront. Like we always know what he's thinking. He's never, uh, he's never quiet. He's never uh, not trying to do something. Uh, he's bold and brash. He, he makes wonderful uh, statements of faith. He's the first one to identify Jesus as the Messiah. He's the only one who gets out of the boat and walks on the water when Jesus is walking on the water. He has all these amazing wins and victories. He also has all these amazing defeats and failures that we can identify with as well. He, he begins to sink because he takes his eyes off Jesus when he's walking on the water with Jesus. He, he uh, identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but then the next day or the next uh, section of verses, he's rebuking Jesus, saying that uh, Jesus doesn't understand what he's talking about and he gets actually told to get behind me, Satan. Uh, uh, Peter it says he's going to go die for Jesus, but then a few hours later, he denies Jesus three times. And so in those successes and failures, we identify with that a lot of times because uh, that is the story of all of our Christian lives, right? There, there's successes and failures. We are all works and progress. And because of that, we, get, we connect a lot with who Peter is, the author of this book. Um, but the important thing, the reason why we had Tristan read that verse is even though uh, John, or even though Peter failed such in such an amazingly epic failure sort of way, after the resurrection, Jesus restored him to ministry. He gave him this challenge this, to feed God's lambs, to tend his sheep. He recommissioned him for ministry. And from that point on, Peter still had some successes and failures, but he was faithful to the end. He served Jesus for 30 or 40 years until he was martyred in probably 64 AD. Uh, famously, he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did, his Savior. Um, and, and so when he's writing this book, most scholars think it's probably the mid-50s AD. So it's, a, it's about uh, 20 years after the resurrection. And so he's writing to a group of churches saying, I, we need to talk about what it means to be faithful to Jesus. And I, I love that he begins by saying, uh, this is Peter, right? So, so Peter was not his given name. He was, his parents named him Simon, but Jesus gave him the new name of Peter. And so when Peter identifies himself as Peter or Rock, he is submitting himself to the authority of Jesus. Because if you have the power to name someone, it means you are in authority over them. And so when he calls himself Peter, he's identifying the fact that Peter is the one who, uh, Jesus is the one who actually gave him this name of Peter. And I love the humility of how he begins. He just says, this is Peter. He doesn't say, this is Peter, the esteemed leader of all the 12 disciples, member of the inner ring of three, the first bishop of Rome, the first, the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church, any of those things. He says, this is, hey, it's Pete. I'm here to write to you and to tell you about what Jesus has shown me. He doesn't feel the need to assert his authority. Instead, he's relying on what it is that the Holy Spirit has shown him. There's, there's that expression that if you have to remind people of your authority, it means you don't have any. And so Peter is not reminding him of authority. He's not throwing his title around. But what he does do is he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this phrase, of Jesus Christ, is really important in the New Testament, the apostle of Jesus Christ. It is never attached to any other title except apostle. We never read about pastors of Jesus Christ or elders of Jesus Christ or deacons of Jesus Christ. It's only a few times that someone says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle means a messenger or a sent one. So Peter is saying the reason he has the ability to write this letter that the people need to listen to is because he is a sent one of Jesus. He is Jesus' messenger, which means if he is carrying the words of Jesus, his words carry the same authority as if Jesus himself were the one communicating this to us. 
Okay, it's the difference between when a kid says to a sibling, hey, you have to take the trash out versus when a kid says, hey, mom says you need to take the trash out, right? There's a lot more authority behind the second one. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, this is the words of Jesus. I am a messenger from Jesus Christ himself. We need to listen to what it says. And so because of that, it means that these things we're going to read about over the next 12 or 13 weeks, we need to submit to them as the very words of Jesus, right? So when he talks about our relationship to government, we don't listen to what our favorite political pundit says. We listen to what Peter says because Peter is telling us what Jesus says. When, we, when he talks about marriage, we don't listen to our favorite marriage counselor. We listen to Peter because Peter is telling us how Jesus thinks that we should relate to our marriage. All of those things. And so, so there's, there's a lot of concepts here. One of them is this authority that we submit to God's word. Like Tristan had a stand for the reading. That is a sign of respect and submission to the word of God. At the same time, there's in this, if it's the words of Jesus, you can't separate the fact that these words are always going to be words of love. Having the very words of Jesus written on the page for us, it's a love letter from Jesus that we can get to know him and his character and his affection for us in a very unique way. And because of that, that means we can study every single word here and know that these are the words of God given to us out of his love. I remember when Kelly and I first started dating, one of the first notes she wrote to me was only six words. And I, can, I remember those six words. I remember the punctuation. I remember the paper it was written on, all those things, because it was a key marker in our relationship and the affection we had for each other. And so this morning, we're only going to study two verses, right? But, but even in these just two small verses, if they are the words of Jesus, the authority of Jesus told through his apostle, his messenger, Peter, that means when we submit to them, that is the place we will find our thriving, What it means to thrive in exile is that when you listen to the king that your citizenship really belongs to, you will thrive even though you're not living in your current home. And so he ends these two verses by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so so that's what it means to thrive, is to experience the grace and the peace of Jesus and have it in a multiplying fashion. And so so grace was the common Greek greeting in the first century. It was a way of saying, uh, take care or hope all is well. But when the New Testament authors talk about grace, they have taken that secular greeting and they've transformed it. When the Bible talks about grace, it is the undeserved, unmerited favor and kindness of God that we have seen chiefly in the person of Jesus Christ. And then when he says, peace be to you, he's taking, that's the first century Hebrew or Israelite greeting, this word of shalom. And by the first century, the Jews were using the word peace or shalom as a way of saying, maybe one day Israel will be restored to a kingdom and we'll have peace under that rule of a king. But the New Testament authors transform that greeting and they say, it's not about a political kingdom. The grace and the peace that we have with Jesus is because he has already paid for our sins and he is our ruler. The kingdom of God has come in the flesh because Jesus came to show us his way. And so because of that, grace and peace, I love this, be multiplied to you. Doesn't doesn't that just sound like something Jesus would do? That he would give us his love and his kindness and his undeserved favor? That he would bring peace and thriving and not just a little bit of it, but it would be continually multiplying and growing in our lives and in our midst? It sounds a lot like what Paul says in Ephesians 3, where he says, now to him, now to Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He's saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The small little things you think God wants to do in your life, what he wants to do is so much bigger, so much more loving, so much more grand than we could ever think or imagine. That's how great Jesus is. And so the author of this letter is Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so who is he writing this to? We see that next. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And those two words, elect exiles, are incredibly important. Uh, Wayne Grudem says that it's a two-word sermon. 
We're going to spend the rest of our morning talking about what does it mean to be an elect exile. And so it's worth repeating. I'm sure you've heard this before if you've been around church for any, any period of time. Most religions have imperatives, right? They, they have commands that the religion places on us. It says, you need to do these things if you're going to be a good adherent of our religion. Okay, but, but with Christianity, it doesn't begin with these commands. It begins with this indicative. It begins with this idea of who are we in Christ? And so in Christianity, it's the only religion that the indicative leads to the imperative. It's not, here's some things you need to do. It begins with your identity and says, here is who you are in Jesus. And because of that, here is what you do. Okay, all of that is bound up in this phrase, elect exiles. And we, we also see this idea of like being a, a vertical relationship with God. How do we relate to him, our vertical relationship? And we also see this idea of a horizontal relationship. How do we relate to the people around us? And so both the vertical dimensions of our identity and the horizontal dimensions of our reality is something we're going to talk about here. So let's begin by looking at this word exile. Okay, so the, the word exile is a very rich Old Testament theme. So in, in 722 AD, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Assyria. And then in 586, uh, sorry, BC, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled to Babylon. And so these two superpowers took the people of Israel and they transplanted them into a foreign country where they had to live out their identity as Israelites, uh, the people of God, apart from their homeland. And so what Peter is doing is he is aligning the identity of the Christians with that same exile identity of the Old Testament Jewish people. And he's saying that you as followers of Christ are not in your homeland. Okay, this, this word exile always means a resident away from their homeland, an alien, a sojourner, someone who is in a society but does not enjoy all the rights or benefits of the society they are a part of. Okay, what, what Peter is doing is he's saying, I need to define your relationship with your culture. You need to understand how to relate to the surrounding culture. And the way you need to relate to that culture is understanding that this is not your home that you are living in exile. You are far from home. But, but the thing that that also points to is if you are in exile where you are living, it reminds you that you have a home that is somewhere else. Peter is telling us that we have a home. We have an identity some other place. And he's trying to remind us that our identity, our citizenship, our home, apart from where we're at, is actually the most important thing that we can cling to. But what he's going to do over the course of this letter is he's going to remind us, if you forget that you are not at home, that always leads to some grave consequences. Okay, if you forget you're not at your home, that always leads to trouble. I, I've used this example before, but I think it's worth repeating. So I, I have a, we'll, we'll call it a friend. I have a friend who sometimes when he's at home, he'll walk around in his underwear and he will drink milk straight from the jug. Okay, like that's something that he does. Uh, but if you invite me or my friend over to your house and you say, hey, make yourself at home you don't mean that he can strip down to his underwear and drink milk straight from your drug at your refrigerator, right? Okay, but if he, someone forgets that they are not at their home and they behave as if they are home, that will always lead to trouble. Okay, so if you treat this world like it is your home, when you relate to government, it is going to be very different than if you realize that this is not my home when I'm engaging politics. If you think this world is your home, that will change how you live out your marriage unless you realize that you are in exile and this world is not your home. And when you're training your kids, what does it mean to relate to their peers and their school and all those things? If you're training your kids that this world is their home, that changes how you train them unless you treat them that this is not their home, that they're far from home, they're living in exile. All of our vertical or horizontal reality, how we live among the world that we are a part of is completely shaped by realizing that this world is not our home. 
Okay, our vertical identity, who we are in Christ, should always change how we engage our horizontal reality. Okay, so that should guide our posture with our culture and how we engage them. So this is something that uh, Jeremiah talks about in the, in the, the, the prophet Jeremiah Old Testament book written several hundred years before Christ. And this is what he says to the people living in Babylon who are currently in exile. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He say, so what Jeremiah is saying the same thing Peter is. The way to thrive in your horizontal reality is to live out your vertical identity. It's to remember that this is not your home. You're living in a place far from home, and that changes how we relate. So there's lots of different postures we can take to society and culture. Some of us take a defensive posture to society. We think that our job is to protect ourselves and our kids from culture and isolate ourselves, pull back, and make sure that the world out there, all that evil doesn't get into here. Uh, But Peter is saying that is not living as exile. You're called to be among your world. Others of us take a passive approach to culture. We, we, we think of us like, whatever is happening, I'm just going to go along with the flow. I don't want to rock the boat. And we slowly become more and more like the culture that we're a part of. And Peter's saying, that's not living in exile. That's living as if that's your home. Others of us take this aggressive approach to posture where we, or to culture where we think we need to fight the culture wars. We need to make sure that the world does Christian things. We need to make sure that we win and impose our values on other people. That aggressive culture is not living as an exile. Instead, what we need to do is take this subversive posture that says we're going to live among the world in such a way that the people of God will be distinct and separate. We're living out our vertical identity among our horizontal reality. And so because of that, wherever you're at in the dispersion, it allows you to thrive in exile. And so he then lists all these cities that he's writing to, these, or these regions of the Roman Empire, Pontus, Galatia. I think we have a map that we can show. Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. It's all the red uh, letters on the map that we have there. And so what that is, the point, reason I want to point this out is none of those areas are important places in the Roman Empire. Right? It's, it's not Athens, it's not Corinth, it's not Ephesus, it's not Rome, it's not, it's not Antioch, it's none of those places. These are the most like backwater, out of the way, unimportant, insignificant places. And what Peter is doing is saying that there is the people of God, there is the church of Jesus Christ in those areas, and it's important for them to live out their identity in those areas. And I think you can see, like, look at that list, and you can say, you know, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Falcon, Peyton, Colorado Springs, those kinds of places, and say, no matter where you are at, you are living in exile. If you live in the cultural epicenter of New York or Paris or somewhere like that, you are still a follower of Christ living in exile. No matter where you're at, it is not your home. And because of that, you need to live out your horizontal reality by leaning into your vertical identity. Who do you have? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And that's where Peter is going to go next. This idea of living in exile means that you are not just in exile. He says you are an elect exile. Okay, that, that, that word elect means chosen. It's, it's the, the uh, grace and special love of Jesus that has been extended to the people of God. 
It's one of the most important words for us to understand what it means to thrive in exile is realizing that we are actually the elect, the chosen ones living in exile. And so this is such an important word that Peter spends the next verse explaining what it means to be elect. So let's read with me verse 2. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And this is kind of one of those, those nerdy uh, Greek things. But, but in the original language that it was written, the word elect is the, one that, the word that governs all three of those other things. He said, you, you are elect under the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. You are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. And hopefully you caught the, the Trinitarian lingo there, right? It's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all together working to change what it, our identity is as followers of Jesus. Okay, all three persons of the Godhead of the Trinity are working together. And so just like we know when you look about the dispersion, the idea that there are Christians in all these places, what Peter is doing is writing to those places saying, you are not alone. There are other exiles living in these other areas around the Roman Empire. And the same thing by bringing all three members of the Trinity together, he's saying, you are not alone, but rather the triune God who has existed in loving unity since before the beginning of time, that Trinity of existing in unity and love has chosen you to be a new creation in Christ, that they're all engaged in your salvation. So let's look at each aspect of this. What, what does it mean to have our vertical identity, to have our identity changed because of what Jesus has done in our lives? The first thing we see is he says that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And a lot of times we use the word foreknowledge to mean like you can see something in advance. So there's this idea that, you know, God is just outside of time. He saw who would become Christians and that those are the, that's what his foreknowledge is talking about. But that's never how the Bible uses the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge in the Bible always means the effective direction of history. God in his foreknowledge guides the path of history. We see this, for example, in like in Acts 2.43. Peter's giving a sermon there, and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's not saying God just saw in advance that Jesus would be crucified. He's saying it was part of the foreknowledge of God, the definite plan of God, that Jesus would be crucified. So in the same way, when it says that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, it's not just that God saw you would become a follower of Christ. It's that God chose you. He said, you're mine. You're going to be on my team. I will change your identity because of my love for you. That's what we see in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Paul says, for those who God foreknew, that's that same word, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse is this great chain of salvation saying from the very beginning, when God chose you, when he foreknew you, when he predestined you, he made you his own, he's justified you, made you righteous. You are now sanctified in the spirit and you are becoming, you will one day be glorified. It's this, this incredible chain that says every single one of those steps is guided by the sovereign hand of God. And here's the reason this is so important to spend some time talking about. It's not because we're trying to have the Arminian-Calvinist debate. It's because Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing suffering, and he's trying to give them encouragement and comfort. The, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, is not something to debate your friends over while you're sipping bourbon or something like that. The doctrine of election is there to comfort us when we are feeling like the world's going to hell in a handbasket and no one knows what's going on. 
when it feels like everyone in the universe is against us, the doctrine of election says God saw you and he chose you and he made you his son and your, his daughter. That's the comfort that should come from that, which is why he says the foreknowledge of God the Father. Right? God is a good dad. And if God is a good dad, that means the experiences you are having right now, the suffering, the trials, the tribulations that you are experiencing is a part of God's good plan in your life. Did anyone get a chance to watch that uh, sermon we sent out last week, that link from uh, the John Stone Street sermon? One of the things he pointed out in there is he says that as a dad, he would have loved to have picked a different era for his kids to be raised in, right? Like no one would say, this is the perfect cultural moment to bring up some kids. And I think they're just going to thrive with how, how great things are going in our society right now. But he said, but, but if it's up to God, if God as a good father in his foreknowledge and his sovereignty has determined that this is the cultural moment that you and I are living in, then because God is a good dad, that means that's actually what is best for us. We can rest in the fact that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you and I are living in this current cultural moment. The next thing he does is draws attention to the Spirit. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that, that word sanctification has two different connotations. One means to be set apart and the other means to be increasingly made holy and like Jesus. So in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, the third member of the Trinity, has set us apart. It's the Spirit dwelling inside of us that makes us different from surrounding culture and the surrounding society. But the Spirit is also the, the Holy Spirit, the one who makes us progressively more like Jesus. And so both of those things are what it means for the Spirit to be at work with us, is that we are in the process of becoming more and more holy, more and more distinct, more and more set apart. And if that's the case, then that gets us to this third thing, this idea of obedience to Jesus Christ. If you, if you have been set apart to be holy for Jesus, that means that we increasingly have this reality and this ability to obey what Jesus is calling us to do, which is so important when we're talking about living among a people in exile. If this is not our home and if society and the surrounding world is living in a different way, we need to realize that it's the spirit that sets us apart and it gives us the ability and the freedom and the power to follow Jesus, to actually obey what he is doing. Which means if our identity is ruled by Jesus, if we have our vertical identity, that has to change everything about our horizontal reality. We do not live horizontally among one another as if pleasing our culture was the most important thing we could do. And we have to recognize that just because culture is pushing something does not mean that that is the idea that is best for us. I, I, there's a, a bumper sticker I've seen before that it says, uh, lions, not sheep. I think it's like a clothing company or something like that. And what they're trying to push is this idea of like, hey, we're not going to be sheep that just do whatever the government tells us. We're lions. We're going to do our own thing. That's a very popular cultural idea here in El Paso County, but it is completely anti-Christ. It is completely unbiblical. There is only one lion, the lion of Judah, and you are not him. Okay, and that lion of Judah, we are told that we are actually the sheep of his pasture. That's literally the metaphor that it uses is we are Jesus' sheep. So if you want to lean into this idea of I'm a lion, not a sheep, you are taking more from your surrounding culture than you are from the word of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter here. The same thing, there's this idea of like live your truth, right? Like what, whoever you think you are, whatever your identity is, it's those feelings that should guide you. But according to Jesus, your identity is rooted in the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We don't get to decide who we are. Jesus has already made that decision for us. That's what it means to submit to him. And so, again, we see this idea, the only way to thrive in our horizontal reality is to live out of our vertical identity. But there's this question then, how do we know that that's true? 
if God's ways are so much different than ours, if his, if his values are so much different than our society, we should expect a continual bombardment of messages and ideas that says, you don't fit in. You should do more to fit in. You're standing out for the wrong reasons. You're experiencing suffering that you shouldn't experience. We need something to root ourselves and say, no, actually, what is best for me is to live out my identity as an elect exile. And that's the last thing we have seen here from Peter I want to draw attention to. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. For obedience to Jesus and a sprinkling with his blood. And there's only one other place in the Bible where that idea of sprinkling and obedience comes together in the same time. It's in Exodus chapter 24. God has delivered the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. He has established a covenant with them. All of Israel gathers and Aaron, the high priest, makes them pledge their obedience to Yahweh to obey what God tells them to do. And then he ratifies the covenant by sacrificing a lamb taking some of the blood and sprinkling it on the people of Israel, saying your new identity of followers of God Almighty has been redeemed in blood. And so when Peter takes this idea and says your obedience to Jesus is your new identity, the reason we know that that is our new identity is because we have been sprinkled in blood from the spotless Lamb of God. The fact that Jesus loved us enough to come to earth, to obey in our place, to die in our place, to all the sins that we've committed, all the sins we will commit, all of those things that we have done to deserve death, instead of that punishment falling on us, the punishment fell on Jesus. His, his uh, blood was shed on our behalf, and we have now been sprinkled and made clean because of that. And so in Exodus 24, when the covenant's ratified, Mount Sinai shakes with the presence of God. In Luke 24, when, or Luke 23, when the covenant is ratified and Jesus' blood is shed, the ground shakes and the dead uh, rise that are in Jerusalem. It's, it's this, this wonderful image tying together saying that all of our sins, all of the things that should shape our identity has been washed away and it's only the blood of Jesus that actually changes who we are in Christ. And the only way to thrive in our horizontal reality is to live out our vertical identity. And we can be confident that our identity has changed because that sovereign ruler of the universe loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the reminders here that that, it doesn't matter who society says we are. It doesn't matter what society says we should do. What matters is the fact that you loved us enough to make us your sons and daughters. Uh, You have sprinkled us with your blood, and that sprinkling has washed us clean from all of our sins. I pray that as we go to our discussion tables now, that we would be able to encourage one another, that we would point one another to the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of the good news that we have here, and we would, would remind one another of what it means to be your sons and daughters, to have our identity shaped by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, we're going to do some times of discussion at our tables. Uh, If you're a regular, you know this is one of the most important things that we do where we can uh, process what God has shown us through his word together. Uh, If you're new here, just know that uh, anything you say at the table, you're welcome to share uh, however much or little you are comfortable with. Uh, Know that you won't be judged in any way, but you'll be loved at your table well. So here's some discussion questions to get us started. Uh, What are some examples of how the American church has struggled to remember that we are exiles? Okay, how does living as if this is our home negatively impact our ability to live for Jesus? A second question is, what does it feel like to not belong in a culture you are immersed in? 
And how does knowing God chose you change those feelings? And then lastly, are there any areas of your life where you might be living as if you belong to this world rather than that you are in exile? So that last question in particular is, requires some vulnerability, some confession. Again, if you are comfortable, just know that anything that you're vulnerable with, you will be loved well at your table as you are honest with that. So we'll take about 10 minutes together to process these questions, and then we'll come back for a time of worship for us to navigate. I, I want us to be having these kinds of conversations uh, as we go about this series the next uh, 12 or 13 weeks. Uh, the, the reason those things are kind of important is because it, it uh, exposes some of the assumptions we have about what it means to be a Christian in America. Oh, all, all Christians believe this, or all Christians behave this way. And what we're re- realizing is that with the different perspectives at your table, you might be realizing that uh, actually that's a cultural idea I have adopted, not necessarily a biblical idea. That's one of the things we talked about at our table is this idea of needing each other in order to fully see what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, one other thing I forgot to mention uh, was that that idea of like our posture to culture, are we defensive, are we passive, are we aggressive or subversive? That comes from a book I read called The Liturgy in the Wilderness. I, I want to make sure I cite my source on that. It's a really good book on the Lord's Prayer and how we can use the Lord's Prayer to relate to society. That'd be another good resource to have uh, as we engage this series here. Uh, what we're going to do now is a little bit uh, different. It's kind of an announcement thing that we have for our church. So we as a, as a church are elder-led, which means that we think that the Bible description of what it means to be a healthy church is that there is a, a, a group of men who are called elders who have the uh, capacity and the character and the, uh, the competency to uh, lead and to shepherd uh, the local church under the, the, under the care of Jesus as our great shepherd. Elders are called to be pastors and shepherds among the church. And so uh, we have myself and then three other lay elders or volunteer elders. And what we've just uh, adopted as a church is this uh, elder sabbatical policy for our volunteer elders, our, our lay elders. Uh, we got this from a church in Texas. I think it's a great way to approach it. It's when someone becomes an elder, they serve a a term of five years as an elder. They commit to those five years. And then at the end of that five years, they have the option of taking a one-year sabbatical or a one-year break from eldering. Um, And so this uh, is the first time this is coming into effect. So uh, my dad, Mark, has served as one of our elders for five years now. And so it is his turn to take a sabbatical. So if you want to come on up, uh, Mark and Desiree, or as I call them, dad and mom, right? So yeah. Um, we mentioned this last night at our partners meeting, but uh, it's really a rare thing to have uh, a, a father and son who can serve as elders in the same team. And it's something just that God has really blessed us with um, to have uh, your leadership and care for the last five years, really the last 10 years. We're about 10 years old as a church and, and he has been eldering the whole time. We didn't have the title of elder in the beginning, but he has been shepherding and caring for the flock in so many amazing ways. And so I, I really, I said this last night, I'll say it again. Like I really wish each of you knew the amount of care that he has provided for you over these last five years as an elder. It's such a blessing to be able to serve alongside your dad as an elder. Uh, and the fact that you guys will never know the amount of uh, sleepless nights he's had, the, the, the weight and the burden of shepherding and caring for God's church, and the way he's done it with so much character and integrity and the, uh, the wisdom that he has shown. Like uh, God's kingdom has advanced in Falcon through his leadership. And so if you get the chance, uh, give him a hug and tell him thanks for this. We also, as, as a church, we have a, a small thank you just for all that you've done these last five years. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a one-year sabbatical, so during this year, just Join us in praying that it would be a time of recharging and refreshing for him, that he um, just, we, our uh, family's gone through a lot, uh, uh, both my, gra- my grandparents' parents passed away this last year and just missed everything going on. Just f- I feel like the, this a year break is going to be a really good thing for 
uh, for Mark slash dad. <laughs> so I always never know how to say that. So, uh, so we're going to pray over you. Uh, Brandon, Bill, if you guys want to come up, um, our other elders, i pray over you, uh, you both. Uh, it's also, uh, it's something that always impacts the whole family whenever someone is taking the responsibility of eldering. Uh, and so we're grateful, Mom, for all that you've given up as well uh, this uh, year. So let's pray. Um, God, we thank you so much uh, for my dad and for my mom and for what a blessing they have been to our church. I thank you for the way that you have used his life experience and the, uh, the things that he has gone through to get him to the place of maturity where he can care for your bride uh, and have that care be an extension of your love for us. And so for everyone who has experienced uh, the love of Jesus through the love of Mark and Desiree these last five years, Lord, we thank you. And we're grateful for the way your spirit has worked among us and made us a stronger body because of this uh, leadership gift that he has exercised. We pray that this next year of sabbatical would be a time of recharging and refreshing and retooling and that when uh, he comes back uh, to the team a, a year from now that he would be even more energetic and passionate about serving your kingdom and seeing uh, the kingdom of heaven come in falcon and, and on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so we're so grateful for uh, all the ways you have blessed us through his ministry. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you. Yeah. So now we're going to transition to communion. Um, man, First Peter's good. Uh, I read chapter one a few times this week. I encourage y'all to do the same. I, I, I couldn't the first half of the chapter, every like three words, I'd have to stop and say thank you, Lord, because it's, it's good. And it's really about seeing what Christ did for us and remembering that. And that's what communion is, is we remember Christ. Um, uh, is that verse up here? So I know uh, in two twenty two, five he says, You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Um, I think Peter's he's sharing the gospel to everyone, to believers, non believers, and he's just reminding us what Jesus has done for us. And he says, We are straying like sheep, we still stray. Uh, and as we go to communion, uh, this is what we do. We remember Christ. He said, when you take this wine and, and break this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And so we remember Christ, what he's done for us. Here at Missio Day, we only uh, we do open communion. So if you are a believer in Christ, uh, we encourage you to take communion. Uh, if you are not a believer in Christ, uh, uh, this isn't for you. But we do encourage you to 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 come to the overseer of your soul. Come to Jesus and uh, remember that you need him and know that you need him. So uh, there's other ways to respond. We can respond in prayer. Uh, Jessica, I'd be in the corner. If you need prayer, uh, you can pray at the table. Ask somebody to pray for you. Prayer is what we need and what we need to be doing. And we can respond by giving. There's a box in the back. There's a, um, on the church website there's a spot you can give there's so you can respond by giving but uh and we can break out in song which we'll do in a second so um but now i seriously uh let's remember what jesus said i'll pray lord uh, lord thank you thank you that uh, you have come to us lord thank you that you've uh, brought us back to you the uh, overseer, shepherd and overseer of our soul. Lord. So help us not forget that. Help us to remember that. And as Colbert said, help us to remember that, that uh, our home is with you. Our home is not here. In Jesus' name, amen.